This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 5.11 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX gives back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. My name is James Gearing and this is episode 366 and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Leslie Yancey. Now, Leslie spent the majority of her career in the respiratory therapist profession, which is a profession that doesn't get a lot of attention when it comes to interviews and exposure. However, they are at the head of most critical patients, whether in the ER setting, whether in ICU, they are attempting to save lives, they are called to 
end lives when there is a life support patient that is going to be ending care. So, so many elements to this discussion, as well as her work now with Hero to Hero. Before we get to that interview, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does make us more and more visible to people looking for a project like this. And this is a free library for you individually, for you within an organization. So all I ask, all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them as well. So with that being said, I introduce to you Leslie Yancey. Enjoy. So Leslie, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to Chris Fields for connecting us. Yes, yes. Wonderful friend. Absolutely. Amazing, amazing man. I got to hang out with him in San Antonio last year. Yes. Okay, so starting, uh, well, firstly, where you are right now, where on planet Earth are we finding you? So I am actually located in Southern Ohio. So it is a tri-state area of uh, Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia. Brittany, how far away are you from North Canton? That's where my wife was born and raised. Uh, several hours. So I, I consider, um, I know that uh, my accent would lead you to believe that I'm uh, Southern. Um, so I get accused a lot of being from Tennessee or um, even Alabama and Mississippi, but I'm actually from Southern Ohio. So it's a little, little odd sometimes. <laughs> well, I'm, I have a messed up accent too, so <laughs> I can relate. Yeah. Um, all right. So then starting at the very beginning, where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. So uh, I was born and raised in Southern Ohio. Um, I was uh, raised on a very, um, in a very rural area and um, raised on a farm. So we had um, every, every animal, uh, lots of horses. We had quarter horses. Um, so I have one sibling, a sister that is two years older than me. Um, so the, the way that I was raised was very, um, I, I use the term uh, rough. I don't know that um, if that's the correct terminology. Um, uh, I was raised and, and was taught very, very early to, um, to be very, very tough and to not show a lot of emotion. Um, wasn't allowed to show fear, uh, anything that I was afraid to do or um, uh, wasn't really comfortable with, then it was always kind of um, uh, encouraged, overly encouraged, I guess, <laughs> to, uh, to go ahead and do that. So, um, so that, you know, that very early on, um, I think led into, um, I think it helped me and, and hurt me, um, a little bit later, I figured out of being raised that way. Yeah. And so what did your parents do? Were they actually horse farmers? Um, no, actually my grandfather was the, the one that, that had the horses and yes, he raised quarter horses. Um, um, my father was an electrician and my mother, uh, was a stay at home mom. Brilliant. All right. And what about sports? Did you play any sports or was it more just being out in the countryside? 
So, uh, yeah, I did. Um, I think I kind of did just about everything. Uh, of course, when I was young, uh, girls played baseball. We didn't have the difference, you know, softball and baseball. So I started off um, baseball and I think I was the only girl on my team. Um, and then uh, played some basketball. And um, once I got into high school, um, I was actually on the color guard. So I was uh, with the band and I also did that um, uh, during college. So I did that, you know, for um, high school and, and college years. And was medicine the route that you wanted to take even when you were in high school? So I was, um, I always have had a, um, I guess I would say like the, um, uh, a caring type aspect to me. Um, I guess a, a, um, I was always very protective um, and I naturally had that, that type quality. Um, no, um, I actually was in my third year of college and I got pregnant young with my first son. Um, and at that point, I made the choice to go into respiratory care because I uh, kind of had a panic moment where I said, I need to do something and do it now so that I can uh, financially provide for this child. So that was kind of how I ended up rerouted and went into the respiratory care program. Brilliant. So tell me about that journey, about about the uh, you know the training that led you into that. So, um, so my degree, um, there's lots of different degrees, uh, associates um, and bachelors, both in in respiratory care. So, um, um, I started off with an associate, um, finished a bachelor's, and then uh, later on actually finished a master's in education. But that was not needed for me to uh, to work as a respiratory therapist. Um, but I actually uh, worked or went to school my first year and then started working as um, a student therapist right after I completed my first year and I had wor have worked in the field ever since then. So over 17 years. Right. And was that in the hospital setting? It was. Yes. Right. So for people out there, obviously, I got to shadow an RT in medic school. So I kind of have a somewhat idea of, of what you guys do. Um, you know, describe the, the kind of scope of practice for an RT. Sure. Um, so a lot of people, the only thing that they um, uh, associate respiratory therapists with are breathing treatments. And actually, you know, that, that's kind of an inside joke of the profession that that is really such a small part of what we do. Um, yes, it is a very important aspect of what we do, um, but we are in all intensive care areas. Um, we are, you know, of course, respiratory therapists work home health. Um, they work in pulmonary rehab. They work um, uh, on flight teams. Uh, so there's several different aspects of care that uh, a respiratory therapist can do. Um, so mine in particular, um, my preference uh, was adult critical care. Uh, we are present in, uh, you know, uh, newborn and high risk deliveries. We work in the neonatal intensive care unit, um, all those different intensive care units. Anywhere that there is someone that may have problems with breathing, we are there. So we're just kind of the unsung heroes of the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, are you guys... Uh, uh, call down to actually attend when we have codes as well to manage the airway? Absolutely. So anytime that there is a traumatic um, 
uh, incident, a, a code blue, a rapid response. Um, if there is an airway that needs to be managed, we are there. So, um, you know, we always say if you're not breathing, you're not doing much of anything else. So uh, there is a respiratory therapist at the head of the bed uh, in all those situations. So from your perspective, having spent a long, long time, you know, literally managing airways as your specialty, what are some of the good things you see with with the the paramedics and and the patients you brought in, and what are some of the the areas you think that we can improve on, and how? Um, you know, we work very closely uh, with our medics, um, uh, and you know, any any type of emergency uh, you know response teams, um, we work very closely with. Um, you know, when they come in and they bring us um, um, a trauma or, you know, someone that has arrested in the field, then they just, you know, they report off to us. They let us know, you know, if they had difficulty getting an airway in, um, you know, maybe they put in a temporary airway because they did have difficulty there. Um, and that lets us know. And, and the they, that lets us know what to expect. Um, and the crazy thing that people don't realize that the patient that I got in off the truck in ER I may be taking care of the next day in ICU. So that that continuum of care never stops in the respiratory world. Whereas, you know, you may be um, um, dependent on that, that um, handoff of report from the ER to the ICU per nursing. Um, chances are, you know, that respiratory therapist um may very well continue and care for that patient once they get them up to ICU. So that is that has always been something that is very helpful, um, that we have that bit of knowledge and we're able to follow that patient from the beginning, you know, all the way through discharge. And um, um, so that's always very helpful. Some things that, um, and, and I have actually worked, I, I've done a lot of education. So my master's degree is in education. And um, I've worked very closely with several um, medic groups and provided education as far as um, early um, implementation of like CPAP on the trucks, um, you know, to prevent intubation, um, uh, different ventilator management for your CCT trucks. Um, so those types of things, um, they, you know, they've actually brought me in to provide that education and um, um, it maybe it's an aspect that um of course that's my specialty so i have you know um uh, more of a history as far as that's concerned more experience so i kind of help them to say you know maybe get a better understanding of ventilator management and um why it's so important to implement you know um these things early in the field so that's one thing that you know that everyone can improve on so that we have that full continuum of care now, what about the the use of intubation or king tubes versus BVM? Because obviously, you know, there's there's uh, you know, always exceptions to the rules. But over the fourteen years of, of my career, I saw very very early on everyone gets a tube kind of mentality to almost swinging the other way, where it seemed like there was a lack of trust of the skills of the medics in some departments where almost no one got a tube. And the king tube is always used. And I love the king tube. I think it's a great airway adjunct. But, um, you know, obviously an ET is the, the ideal 
ideal placement. But what have you seen over almost 20 years as far as the the philosophy behind intubation? Yeah. So um, actually, they, um, you know, I actually work for Ambu now. So the King Tube is, uh, you know, that's that's my employer's tube right now. But um, the thing that uh, and, and I think this is what a lot of um, people need to understand. First off, airway management. I teach a lot of difficult airway courses um, and um, airway management has, like you said, it, it has. Um, I guess maybe the maybe fear stops people from, you know, like establishing a good patent airway sometimes, maybe fear of not getting the airway. Um, any of those temporary tubes, obviously, that's much better than not having an airway at all. Um, so getting one established is is your number one goal. But I think that we have lost a lot of the finesse um, needed um, for for airway placement. I don't feel like we focus as much on airway placement as we did, you know, back in the day. Um, and, you know, we, we have transferred to a lot of our education being online, not hands-on. Um, you know, like our PALS and our ACLS now are done through a computer. Um, and I think that we lose a lot of that hands-on that really forced us um, to practice and, and educate. Yes, we still have to do the checkoffs, but um, I think we've lost a lot of that. I think also with the video assisted devices that we have now, um, people forget that, you know, there may be a chance that you have to do it old school. So um, and I see that now and, and you may be able to attest to this, that when we originally learned to uh, to intubate with a basic basic laryngoscope and that visual view, um, when we got the video assisted devices, we kind of had to um, uh, kind of shift our, our our procedure, our practice a little bit because we were no longer looking down the head of the patient. Um, so we had to learn to look to the left or look to the right or look up to see that screen on that video assisted device. Um, so to us who started off with the basics without that, um, we were able to adapt our, our process. So what I'm seeing now is the, the, the new ones that have all these devices in the world to help with that intubation process, um, they can't go back to basics because they've started with all these bells and whistles and they can't do, uh, you know, they can't use just that basic laryngoscope anymore. Um, and any of those temporary airways, like I said, those are great. Um, but having the understanding that I can't ventilate that person on that temporary airway. Um, and we know that, you know, we end up with a lot of gastric inflation when we have those. So when I place them on uh, mechanical ventilation, I have to switch that tube out. Um, so that's just, you know, that's just kind of the basis of, of that anyways. When I get that into the, to the ED, then I'm going to have to change that tube out. Yeah, well, you hit on training. I think that's very, very important. I have to give credit to my last department. One of the best things they ever did, they set up a cadaver lab. And as freaky as it was, you intubating this torso of a human being, armless torso, something out of some horror show. But uh, I mean, as far as function and, and repetition, it was absolutely incredible. And then I actually put myself through a an advanced airway lab, you know, on my own as well. But it was a lot of pig traits and that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, that's that's it. Some of us, I think, look at skills as a checkbox. And I've had this with, you know, extrication. Well, you've already got that class. Why do you want to take it again? Well, I did it several years ago. I, you know, I've lost those skills now. So I think that that's absolutely 
you know, a, a very, very important thing that, yes, you can intubate a plastic mannequin, but there are so many other ways that we can train to hone those skills even more. Yes. And I do actually do a lot of cadaver labs. And um, I, I was um, very fortunate that when, when I got uh, my new position that um, they sent the, the clinical trainers to go do um, a cadaver lab with Rich Levitan. And um, Rich Levitan uh, was the he is the physician who um, he patented like a GoPro for airways. Um, so he goes through, you know, a lot of difficult airway management that, um, you know, should be just basic knowledge. And um, what I see when, when I teach these difficult airway courses is, like you said, number one, they're all very young residents. Um, and a lot of these skills, you know, just like you said, they check mark this box and, hey, they think they've got it. When every airway is unique, you never know and you don't ever assume that it's going to be easy to manage that airway. Um, and, you know, um, uh Confidence will will kick you in the butt every time uh, when when you get overly confident on airway management. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, and I think ego is something that I've seen a lot too. And I think if if you have a inflated ego, then you're going to think that you don't need to train. Whereas I personally come from the school where I was terrified from beginning to end that you know we, we have to try and somewhat master so many skills and that's what makes firefighter paramedic you know position be so so exciting as well but it's a constant struggle to learn i had a, a gentleman on david hughes and his son drew um fell off a skateboard had a basically it sounded like a concussion banged his head a little bit and then the series of medical screw-ups which resulted in his esophagus being intubated with him they're doing a partial RSI, so they they put the paralytics in, but didn't sedate him either. So basically, he was fully aware that he was suffocating and he died in the back, you know, under the quote-unquote care of a medic. So, but even before that, the fact that he was RSI, I mean, it was just, it was a series of, of medical errors that was absolutely ego-based. They didn't even bother putting a capnography on or anything. So that's another area that I've seen, another separate thing, not to yabber on, but I had a stroke patient that uh, they decided at RSI who, again, I think actually would have been fine on a non-rebreather. And then the ER doc literally went through it almost like it was some sort of theatrics, all these different airway adjuncts trying to get an airway because her, her tongue was so swollen. She'd been on the floor for three days. Um, and, you know, blood was coming out of the tube and, and he spent like 30 minutes trying to stick a tube down rather than having the humility to to leave the king in place, maybe ask someone with expertise to come down, you know, or even do, you know, a, a trach or something. But so that's an area that, uh, what have you seen in your, in your profession um, with ego over airway? Yeah. So actually, you know, that um, that's a very good point. Um, you know, as far as checking your ego at the door um, and, you know, you asked what, um, you know, how can we work better, you know, between, between medics and, and the, the professions, you know, once they meet us in the, in the ER, um, um, ego gets in the way a lot. Um, and at, for some reason, um, people assume that, um, if, if I'm in a place where I can be taught something, then, um, then maybe I don't, maybe I'm not good enough or I don't have enough knowledge or me teaching you something, um, 
they take that as an insult. Um, and that's totally not true. Um, we need to uh, just go ahead and accept that we don't know everything and that medicine is constantly changing. And maybe someone can tell us something that, hey, this is a great trick that, uh, you know, a tip or a trick that can save somebody's life. And um, uh, I've been in the situation a lot where, um, you know, our our protocol was always that the most experienced person in the room was the one that would put the airway in. Um, I was, I always say I was raised um, at a teaching hospital, which meant a lot of times, you know, there were residents and uh, resident physicians and they wanted to get those intubations in. Um, and being the practitioner that I am, um, and um, I was kind of known for my, um, I'll, I'll say passion. Some people want to say aggression, but I'm going to call it passion. Um, I was never, um, I was never shy about saying, "Hey, look, you've had your chance. You know, step out of the way," um, because the overall goal should be, uh, you know, a positive outcome for that patient. And you know, I don't care if you didn't get it. Um, I don't care if if you know your ego wasn't stroked this time. Um, my overall goal is, is the betterment of that patient, uh, you know, their status and, and getting them, uh, you know, an airway established and making sure they have a positive outcome or as positive as possible. Absolutely. Well, what about pediatric airways? Those, those are definitely the ones that terrify most of us medics. Um, what, again, has you seen in, in your you know, expertise as far as the the common mistakes and the, I guess, tricks of the trade for, um, you know, securing a pediatric airway. Right. And, you know, with kids, um, of course, they have that, you know, that more floppy airway, um, uh, definitely more narrow. Um, you end up with a lot of gastric inflation a lot when, when you're uh, providing bag mass ventilation for pediatrics. Um, so, you know, just the the overall, hey, what are we doing? Are we, you know, are we maintaining our saturation? Like you said, capnography is very big in the pediatric world um, uh, and not waiting. Um, you know, kids go bad very, very quickly. Uh, and a lot of times you would see kids come in when, hey, an airway should have already been established, but because of fear um, or because they just wanted to let someone else do it, then they hesitate on those things. Um, so definitely, you know, uh, that's, you know, we have a lot of teams that are, uh, that are just specific for our pediatrics. Um, but um, yeah, kids are usually the Achilles heel for everybody. Um, and, uh, those people that work specifically in pediatrics, you know, they are, they are, uh, wonderful heroes, um, just because overall that's very difficult. So, um, yeah, not being afraid, um, and, you know, staying up on your skills. Um, you never know, you know, if you're a medic, um, and, you know, or you're in a, in an ER, you never know what call you're going to answer. Um, so if that's something that you're not as confident in, then by all means, um, make sure that you uh, practice and practice and practice um, and don't just check mark those boxes. Absolutely. Well, the other side that, that I was really exposed to when I did my RT rotations and I had one day, it was crazy because one patient I had to 
pull the tube, obviously under under their their watchful eye of a terminally ill patient, they decided to, you know, um, to allow to pass. And then there was a uh, really bad CHF patient who was basically drowning that I got to intubate. And so, you know, it was very interesting to see that there was the saving life and then taking life element of what you did. So obviously with that, and being there, all the codes, there must be an incredible um, uh, weight of that failure to save that I refer to a lot. You know, that kind of, um, uh, oh God, what's the word? Um, shame. Thank you. Um, the, you know, the shame, the, the, the guilt that you weren't able to say, save a life. But in the ICU and the ER setting, that's even more often than, you know, most other medical fields. So how did that, factor into your mental health through your career um uh, well uh, you know of course that's a that's a great question and the what i have found is that most of us just accept that part um and we don't take the time to recognize what that does to our mental health um and that that's kind of where um, I decided and when I decided to, you know, start educating on this stuff um, was, you know, like you said, um, you feel responsible. You feel responsible for that patient's care. Um, it's a very protective um, type uh, role that you take on with that patient. Um, and, you know, like I said earlier, I may have, you know, gotten that patient into the ER. Um, maybe I saw them come in and um, they weren't as sick. And then, you know, maybe I got them in in ICU and, um, you know, they, you know, progressively got worse. And, um, yeah, you do feel this responsibility that, hey, how can I fix this person? Um, and then that leads to. Uh, you know, we had a lot of protocols in place so that, um, you know, that we managed the ventilators, um, you know, kind of independently um, and reported to the physician as long as we stayed within that protocol. Um, and you do feel a lot of responsibility. And some days, um, you know, you felt like you spent your whole day just um, literally trying to keep people alive, but yet um, you still felt defeated. You felt defeated because maybe some weren't receiving um, the care that you felt that they should have, or um, you know maybe your your workload was so high that hey I didn't get en- spend enough time with this you know particular patient, um, and even though that wasn't necessarily uh, you know that that wasn't my fault, but due to your workload um, you still never felt accomplished. Um, the, uh, um, you know, when, when a family chooses to discontinue care or remove care from a patient, um, um, you know, terminally remove care, um, a lot of, you know, that probably is something that a lot of people don't realize that that's, you know, that's what respiratory does. Um, some nurses, but usually we go in as a team and, you know, we, um, at that point, we're trying to make it the most comfortable situation for the family. Um, so, you know, that means that I'm I'm running in, I'm trying to clean the patient's face off. I'm trying to make sure that they're not making any, um, any, you know, well, for lack of a better word, any gurgling sounds or anything that, uh, you know, because at that point I'm protecting the family. Um, and that takes me out of self, you know, um, I'm, I'm not really thinking about myself 
um, I'm, I'm concerned. And now my, my attention has gone to that family. So, you know, we do a lot of things um, that families don't realize that we go in there and then we do to try to make that a, as peaceful as a, of a process, you know, to them. Um, uh, I've had, and I, you know, I worked at a trauma hospital and, um, you know, I've had mothers, you know, the anger lots of time is directed towards us. Um, because they know that when that tube comes out, that their loved one will pass. And um, essentially, if if there's anger or, you know, they are acting out in anger, um, that anger is directed towards us, you know. And, and it's not that I, you know, ever took that personally, but, you know, I've had mothers yell at me, um, um, no, I'm not ready yet, or, um, you know, and, and, but, you know, and it, I'm just doing my job. Um, but yet that doesn't make it any easier on me. You know, I mean, I still do my job to the best of my ability. We all do. Um, but at the end of the day, it doesn't make it any easier on me that that mother, um, you know, recognized me as ending her child's life. Yeah. Well, I had one of my, uh, one of my guests recently that, um, he's a British fireman. He was talking about the real, the real stress from, a death is not the the actual dead person it's the family it's it's the emotions that you see after and that's exactly what you're seeing too and we get the same out on the streets you know we weren't there fast enough we're not doing enough why are we not working the code you know all these things when actually they're all for very good reasons you know and we are there and the more you shout at us the less we're able to do but yeah that raw emotion has to go somewhere and it's we're like sponges it, it goes into us it is and you know one thing that one thing that i always point out is you know, as simple as someone is, um, you know, and we deal with all walks of life and, and people from all different areas. Um, and as people try to do and people try to control whatever they're able to. So, you know, and we see this a lot. And I know that, that you know, that medics and, and any of your first responders see this as well, that families do what they know to do. Um, so maybe that's, hey, I want to force feed um, this person with terminal cancer because they're not eating. They don't understand that that process, that body process of shutting down, you know, that that patient has that release of hormones and they don't feel hunger. But that's all that that person is able to control at the moment. And that's what they're going to do. Um, and, you know, the the um, the patient that, you know, maybe is a head injury and their temp is 104 um, and all that loved one wants to do is put a blanket on someone. Um, so stepping back and realizing, hey, that that anger is not directed towards me personally. Um, they're just trying to control whatever they can. And lots of times families will act out um, and they will make that very hard on us. Um, you know, we just have to have that compassion and understanding that they are simply just trying to control whatever they can in a very uncontrollable situation. Now, total uh, tangent for you, but I had a, a doctor, Dr. BJ Miller on for, for a couple of times now on the show, and he's a palliative care physician. He himself uh, actually was on a rail car in, I think it was Princeton, have I got that right? Um, in the Northeast anyway. And um, he basically, he and some friends were just messing around. They climbed on top and it arced, hit his wristwatch, and took one of his arms and both his legs. Um, so an incredible, incredible man. But listening to him talk about, um, you know, hospice and even actually euthanasia 
is is fascinating because he's worked in that field his whole life and we do it to our animals without even thinking about it but like you said we seem to fight and fight and fight to let a human being go so just you personally not representing a hospital or, or, or a company or anything being in in around so many terminally ill patients what is your view of, of euthanasia so, um, you know, and this is a lot of things that, you know, the general public doesn't understand or doesn't want to accept um, as well. But, you know, we always say there are a lot worse things than death. Um, and, you know, I have seen families through the lack of being able to process a situation um keep someone alive. And I say keep them alive because we have them on, you know, lots of drugs that is is keeping their heart beating and keeping their blood pressure up. And, uh, you know, we have them, we're breathing for them. We're doing all these things when the body essentially is wanting to die. Um, and um, I think that uh, death itself, um, you know, personally, I believe everyone, everyone has a time. Um, and whether we agree with it, that time frame or not, um, or are willing to accept it, there is a time. Um, and I personally would prefer a more peaceful passing. I, I wish more people would be um, uh, more accepting of allowing those natural things to take place following an illness or an accident. And, um, you know, when I said we go in and we make someone comfortable and we make sure that um, uh, that there's not any, you know, um, that no one is struggling, uh, that the family doesn't see that, you know, no one wants to see their loved one gasping for breath um, as they die. And, um, you know, we normally do have morphine and drugs like that, that, that we are able to give that patient and let them pass peacefully and without pain. Um, and to me, that is the, the, the best choice because I've seen it both ways. Um, and I've seen families that are very accepting and, you know, letting people pass in a very peaceful um, atmosphere surrounded by their loved ones. And then you see the ones that aren't willing to let that happen. And then as healthcare providers, we are forced to continue CPR. We are forced to um, and essentially to me, it feels like I'm torturing a human being. Um, from the healthcare side, um, because we are fighting the inevitable as far as we're concerned. Um, and it's very difficult to get families to understand that sometimes. Absolutely. Well, BJ talked about, um, I asked him about all these these patients that he had, and they, they had all passed. Was there any uh, you know, correlation between people who had acceptance prior to death and people who were completely, you know, distraught prior to death. And his, his observation was um, regret. The patients that had lived a life, taken chances, you know, uh, did the things they wanted to do. He said they, they overall were content. They, they welcomed it in a way. But then the ones that felt like they, you know, for whatever reason, hadn't done what they wanted to do, that was the, that was the kind of common denominator he saw that caused uh, trauma before death. So, what, have, have you had any observations of that? Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, in the the area that I that I live in, um, you know, uh, I would say for the majority, you know, most of us are very uh, faith based and very grounded in our faith, and you know, you see 
you do, you see people who are, are ready to go, who say that, you know, that they have fulfilled, you know, their purpose here. Um, and it's a very peaceful, almost a, um, uh, a joyful type situation, even though it's the end of a life, um, you know, they've, they've accepted that and they're okay with it as opposed to someone, like you said, um, you know, uh, that maybe, maybe have gotten to this point and realized, Hey, you know, I wasn't great to my family. Um, or, you know, I, I let this stuff pass and I didn't make things right. Um, and I'm not ready to go. Um, so you definitely see both of that. Um, and that's one thing that, uh, that being in this profession, um, I really don't know how people do what we do and um, don't have some type of recognition of, of, you know, the afterlife or after they leave here, um, because we do see that and we do see the peace that faith brings people. Um, and, and it's totally different. And it's actually very, very painful for us. Uh, when we're trying to care for someone that isn't passing peacefully or doesn't have that acceptance of, of that they're they're dying. Um, and, you know, that's that's very difficult for us as well. Yeah, I, I had a, a good friend of mine, Steph Crossan on. She's an ICU nurse. She was a firefighter paramedic and then actually had a horrendous accident. She's rear ended in a car. But um, she ended up recovering and, and already was a nurse. So she transitioned full time to to nursing. But she said something to me before we actually did the interview about ICU, ICU psychosis. And I'd never heard that before. But once she described it, I'm like, well, that makes perfect sense. And so we have these terminally ill patients, um, some who may recover, you know, some maybe there's a, there's a turning point, but they're surrounded constantly by lights, by beeping monitors, by, you know, stimuli being woken up to take, you know, blood pressure over and over again. So what's your perspective on that? Yeah, so it's actually um, um, funny that you brought that up because you know we do a lot of things in the ICU to try to um, uh, to try to combat that. Um, you know, as far as turning lights on, turning lights off, um, having a quiet time so that we try to keep them in that in that rhythm of you know daytime and nighttime. Um, but uh, you know, and of course, we always try to orient them to you know time and place. Um, but a funny thing, uh, when I was doing, uh, I was, um, speaking, I believe in Indiana and I had a respiratory therapist who came up to me and she had, um, uh, had had to have, uh, some type of surgery, some type of brain surgery. And she went to ICU and they couldn't get her blood pressure down and they couldn't, you know, she was tacky and, and all these things. And she kept trying to tell them, even though she was, you know, under sedation or had some sedation on board, that she had to get out of that unit. Um, and uh, just because of her profession, um, the blood pressure, like you said, the heart rate, um, hearing all those machines was actually causing her so much anxiety and was kicking in, you know, her response as a healthcare worker that they couldn't get her under control, um, uh, you know, her vitals because of her reaction to all those uh, all those monitors and things. Um, so once they did move her off and onto a step down unit, um, her blood pressure normalized, her heart rate normalized. Um, and, you know, I've heard um, I heard another lady talk that was a respiratory therapist that went in for a basic, um, you know, gallbladder type surgery. 
And uh, through complications, she woke up and she was on a ventilator and she was trait. Um, and one thing that, you know, that she talked about from the healthcare standpoint, going into the patient setting was, um, you know, the, the yonk hour that they clean her mouth out with, um, you know, the, the nurse or the therapist would stick it under her pillow. And that's something that we normally do to keep track of it. But she said that constant sound of that suction under the pillow drove her crazy. And she said that they would take her places and they wouldn't tell her where they were going in the hospital. So she learned to count ceiling tiles to figure out where she was um, and, and things like that. So there's a lot of things as practitioners that we take for granted or that we don't take the time to do that can also combat that, you know, that ICU psychosis of, um, uh, you know, so that's kind of a hard thing because, you know, you've got us trying to stay awake all night to care for these patients. And then we're trying to dim the lights and make it quiet, um, you know, and trying to set that atmosphere for nighttime and and rest. And then, you know, we're trying to stay awake. So that's kind of a, a difficult balance on that part. But, um, you know, definitely always talking to your patients. Um, and I've worked with fabulous nurses um, and other other uh caregivers that make a point to uh, let their patients know where they are, um, talking to them, even if they don't know if they can hear them or not due to sedation. Um, so all those things are very important. And we definitely always have to make sure that we recognize that those um, struggles may be taking place and just treating the, the, the person, the individual, you know, it's, um, um, and just making sure that we keep that connection with them to help combat that, that issue. Yeah. And I mean, I, I found myself being too much of a medic on scenes and saying things while we're running a code that actually was probably upsetting to the patient's family that were in the next room. I mean, I can remember a specific example. Um, but you're right. There's, there's, there's a danger of being too sterile too robotic in what we do and forgetting the power of you know a kind word a you know a touch on the shoulder or like you said just a conversation letting people know what's about to happen right and um you know and that's that's one part of of uh you know our coping mechanisms and um that's where it it's it's a very thin line between how we cope with these situations um, uh, and how we care, because sometimes our version of coping um, means that we detach from the situation and we have to be very careful of uh, where we draw that line of protection for ourselves because it can be detrimental to the situation and to our patients. Absolutely. Well, speaking of patient, I want to I want to talk about COVID towards the end once we're we're done with your your journey. But um, what have you seen over twenty years as far as the overall health of the people that come in? Obviously, you're in ICU, so it's kind of an echo chamber. But you know the 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 average person's health, the average person's lung capacity, for example. Um, you know, have you have you noticed a, a downward trend or compared it to different countries? If you ever got to travel. Um, well, you know, in in our area alone, um, it's very it's a very rural, um, economically depressed area, um, and you know, I, you know, I normally something I, I commonly say is that patients are getting uh, more sick. They have more, you know, comorbidities, um, and you know, um, 
you know, I contribute that to lack of, you know, lack of education, um, that it is a, uh, you know, some people truly do not have the tools needed um, to take care of themselves effectively um, and, and to be healthy. Um, we don't have access to a lot of uh, fresh foods, um, you know, as far as the cost of, of fresh foods and healthy foods, you know, it's, it's a lot more expensive to eat that way. Um, and it takes a lot of work and some people just don't have that, that knowledge to do that. So you end up with all these comorbidities um, that, you know, contribute to this patient's overall illness. Um, so, you know, we're seeing patients, uh, you know, in their 40s that are already oxygen dependent. Um, you know, you're seeing these morbidly obese patients that, uh, you know, have, you know, they are they are diabetics. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, then they have the decreased lung volumes um, and, and then, you know, and then in our area, we have, you know, um, a big uh, problem with with substance abuse. So all those things just um, combine and and make these patients very, very ill um, that, you know, maybe we, we weren't seeing, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah, well, I think we talked about this last time. So, you know, the chief that was in... Um Oh God, the West Virginia opiate documentary, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, heroin. Yeah. My friend Jan Rader um was the uh the fire chief that they followed around um uh in that uh documentary. So, you know, um in our area, anytime that you have um, you know, we have uh, an area that is um uh you know that when you have poverty um, you have people who don't have access to jobs, um, and, and, you know, drugs slowly make their way into those, those places. Um, it, and it's kind of like, it creates the perfect storm for that. Um, and, um, so yeah, it's, it's a, a very big issue in my area. And then, you know, it, then it, it affects the whole family. It affects the children that we're seeing, um, you know, it affects the school systems, uh, you know, our, our patients where, you know, they're not just overdoses, they're overdoses that, um, you know, that have uh, bilateral pneumonias because they've laid so long, um, you know, they have, have comorbidities as well on top of, you know, being coming in as an overdose. And it really wears on you. And like I said, I think it's a coping mechanism to try to um, try to maybe, um, you know, try to say, well, you know, this person chose this or this person, um, you know, they they overdosed and, and they chose to, to take that drug um, when we really need to be processing hey, why did somebody, why did they, they choose drugs to begin with? Nobody wakes up and says, hey, I want to be an addict today. Um, so where did, where are we going wrong that that is a, a choice and a way for those people to cope is, is to get started on those drugs. So there's, you know, lots of programs in place here. Um, and it's kind of a, um, uh, it, it is a very sensitive issue in our area because, you know, you have the people who think, no, they don't deserve it. And we're spending so much on Narcan um, that, uh, you know, we're giving it away. Um, you know, there's, there's um, clinics and, and they give Narcan away um, to the public. So, um, 
you you have both sides of the coin here where um, some people say that they shouldn't do it and that's my tax money. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, um, and I think that, you know, I've always taken this stance that um, my job is to take care of a patient um, and it is not my job to judge how they got there. Um, I don't care what their socioeconomic status is. Um, you know, there isn't a VIP in my book. Um, you know, I'm not going to take care, better care of someone um, because they are uh, considered high up in standings in the community. Um, I'm going to offer the same care to all my patients across the board, regardless of, of you know, their situation before they got to me. Yeah, it's, it's a topic that comes up over and over and over again, and it's kind of like a, a broken record for me, but I'm going to keep talking about it because I need to get people to, to change the way they think. But like you said, handing out Narcan is the same as a guy running around stabbing people and saying, well, how many times are we going to give you bandages? That's not the issue. It's the guy stabbing people that's the issue. It's the the uh, um, the prohibition of drugs that has created this issue. We have a nation full of hurting people and they're using you know illicit drugs alcohol gambling social media food whatever it is to fill that void and by by forcing them into the shadows we've created these this awful violence that we see in the streets that we're seeing right now that's all coming from you know drugs basically the gangs and the police and everything else that that whole kind of pseudo war and so I, I've had people, I've interviewed a guy in Portugal, for example, who one day they said enough is enough. This this prohibition isn't working. They legalized addiction, not selling, not smuggling addiction, and they changed their, their overdose problem in less than a decade. So as long as we hang on to this prohibition, which worked, you know, was an absolute travesty when it's alcohol... And I, I joke time and time again, you don't see Budweiser and Smirnoff having wars in the streets, you know. So how we don't learn from that, I still baffles me. But if we want to fix so many of these areas, including the opiate crisis that we're seeing, we have to look at that. You take away the 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 criminal's ability to smuggle drugs. Now these addicts can go through the medical system. They can get the recovery treatment they need. They can get the mental health treatment they need. They're not felons. So they don't have a criminal record that drives them further into the shadows. But like you said, these are human beings. But throwing Narcan at people is, is a temporary fix until they go and do it again. And it's not like, oh, didn't they learn? No, it's not about learning. They're, they're in pain. They're, they're leaning on something to get away from reality. Yes. And, you know, my take, um, uh, and, and I also use this uh, term a lot, um, is that it's unfortunately, a lot of times it's politically profitable to have people in this state of dependence. Um, and, you know, and we see that a lot, too, that, you know, when we have people that are in this dependency, um, whether it be government dependency, whether it be drug dependency, whatever the situation is, like I said, it's the perfect storm. And we're able to manipulate those groups very easily um, uh, once they're in that state of desperation. They're in that state of, uh, you know, they feel like they can't get anywhere on their own. Um, and, you know, and unfortunately, we see that it's, uh, you know, that it also becomes profitable and some people aren't in this recovery 
um, uh, push for the right reasons. Um, you know, and, and that is very disturbing to me as well. And I actually did a, um, uh, actually sat in on a, a webcast, um, this week, um, August, uh, I believe it was August was, you know, addiction awareness month. Um, and I sat in on that and I listened to all these programs of what they were doing once the overdose occurs. You know, we're talking about handing out the Narcan. We're talking about, hey, once that overdose occurs, we're going to the house. We're sitting down with these people, um, you know, trying to get them uh, into rehab. And my brain kept saying, wait a minute, what are we doing upstream? Why do we keep waiting until someone's drowning downstream? Why aren't we offering mental health upstream to prevent those people from falling in? And then we're dragging them out down at the bottom. Um, I think that that should be our focus. Um, that why is this the, the coping me mechanism that so many people are choosing? Um, and that's where, you know, that stigma with mental health is uh, uh, we have to get over that. Um, if we want to get anywhere uh, in this battle with addiction, we have to address the mental health side of that um, and make that available, um, make that as available as the Narcan that we're handing out on the streets, um, get them into counseling. We have to fix the brain portion of that before we can fix anything else. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a perfect example. You, you kind of set the scene of, of the health of people that you're seeing in the ICU. Um, and I think that's a good analogy. Like the Narcan is the hand sanitizer. And, you know, the addiction is the COVID, but no one, even now, five months into the COVID crisis, no one's talking about, let's make our, our nation healthier. Let's get, let's address obesity, diabetes, all these things. So we don't have a chronically sick population that a virus can take advantage of. But that conversation is not being had either. And I think addiction is exactly the same thing. No, because again, you know, and, and we see that a lot, um, that, this, you know, even even talking about the virus, it's become politically profitable. Um, and and that is the wrong way to take care of anything. Once we have moved it into uh, that category, um, then, you know, it's definitely, um, you know, an uphill battle. We we definitely go at things the very wrong way. Um, and and, you know, there's no there's nothing. And we got to erase that. That stigma that says, you know, if you seek help, if you seek counseling, um, that that makes you a weaker person or that says that you're unstable or that says that you can't do your job or that says that our law enforcement officers can't carry a firearm. We have to get rid of that um, in order to stop suicides, in order to, uh, you know, stop the addictions, whether it be from our healthcare workers or our first responders, or whether it be from, you know, our, our population uh, in, in the streets, that all has to, everybody needs to, you know, that, that mental health. And that is not being, being addressed. Absolutely. And then you said about addiction within our population. I mean, I've lost friends to overdoses you know i've lost friends to suicide you know the, i know i've got a very good friend of mine that thank god he overcame alcoholism and his story is horrendous childhood abuse and all kinds of stuff and third time basically he, he told me if i i'm gonna go in therapy one more time into a you know a, a rehab clinic if it doesn't work that's it meaning he was gonna stick a gun in his mouth these are our men and women that are serving the community serving the country so even if you're 
you lack the humanity to care about the regular people, the the guy living under the you know the 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 freeway, whatever it is. Your own men and women, even if you don't realize, there is so much addiction amongst our people. So everyone's hurting. That's why we lose politicians and rock stars and police officers and you know. I mean, every it it, it we're all hurting the same way. And the sooner we realize this is a human problem, the sooner we address it. Absolutely. And, you know, and, you know, one thing that I, uh, a point that I came to um, in my life was saying, you know what, um, if anyone tells you that they have all this figured out, or they have it all together, they're either lying to themselves, or they're lying to you. Um, But one way or the other, they're lying because none of us know what we're doing. <laughs> we're all trying to figure this out. So, you know, um, actually, I'm more concerned with that person who says that they do have it all figured out because, you know, they're in denial because none of us do. We're all just fumbling through. Um, and, you know, human compassion and empathy um, and love for one another is, is what w- the whole world needs uh, a whole lot more of right now. Absolutely. Well, speaking of mental health then, so, you know, you, you spoke about losing a friend, about burnout. So walk me through, you know, when you noticed that there were issues with yourself. Yeah. So, um, uh, like I said, I was always, um, or, you know, I am known or, or was known, um, clinically to be, to be very aggressive. And, and the way that I, you know, I always say, and, you know, this stemmed from childhood that, um, you know, you didn't show fear. You didn't show um, uh, sadness. Um, you know, I grew up in a in an environment that, hey, you know, if I cried, you know, suck it up. Um, if if I was uh, if I verbalized or showed fear of something, then I was made to do it twice. You know, whatever it was. Um, so, you know, I was raised to be very, very tough. And I always say that I didn't choose to be that way. Um, it's just how I, I had to be. Um, and, you know, so when I when that transferred over into the, the hospital world, um, you know, it is a very, very cutthroat environment. Um, so, you know, you do a lot of, of things, you respond to a lot of situations that, you're afraid um, or, you know, like we've talked about that you have emotion, you know, you're seeing that family member, um, you know, you are uh, working a patient that, you know, that that you are connected to, um, you know, in and those patients may be, uh, you know, they may be your own co-workers. That's happened, you know, several times. Um, and uh, anger became my go to emotion. Um, because anger is very safe. Nobody looks at someone who's angry all the time and says they're a very weak individual. Um, It was a protective mechanism for me. Um, It was um, it was how I I carried myself. Um, And, um, um, you know, I always um, put my patients first. And if I felt like my patients were not receiving the care that they needed, I never just walked away. Um, you know, I was considered, well, you know, um, jokingly, but, you know, I was a, a problem maker. Um, I drew attention to things uh, to make sure that the patients were, were cared for. Um, but, it, you know, that didn't, that didn't save me from those emotions that I wasn't expressing. 
all those were there. I just wasn't expressing them. And I, you know, and I always say that, you know, you put things in a box and you pack it away. And eventually that stack gets so high, it's going to start crashing. And when it crashes, um, you know, that may, you know, there's lots of different things that people do. Um, and, you know, substance abuse may be one of them. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, we talked about, um, you know, abusing food and things like that. But, um, but you know, me personally, um, uh, I, mine didn't happen until I actually left bedside. Um, and when I left bedside care, um, I actually had a hero to zero uh, moment. Uh, you know, I was had worked my whole career. Um, I was in a marriage that wasn't supportive. Um, uh, so, you know, when I came home, it wasn't something you didn't talk about what you dealt with at work. Um, you know, in fact, you had someone that said, I don't want to hear about those things. And, you know, the um, uh, just the stress from never being able to decompress ever. Um, so when I left bedside care, um, I actually had that moment where I thought, you know, God, what am I doing? I mean, I was put on this earth to care for other people. Um, and I only identified as my profession. Um, I had a lot of pride in my profession. I was very, um, um, or I am, you know, very good at, you know, I felt like I was very good at what I did. Um, I was, you know, highly respected in the community. Um, and then, you know, when, when, and, you know, and I see a lot of first responders have this as well. You know, you show up, people are, are happy to see you. You are the one that responds to their emergencies or, you know, their worst situations in their lives. We are the ones that go in and handle that. And I left bedside care for another job through a series of events. Um, and I felt like I was nothing. I felt like, um, that I had no purpose. Because all that time, I only identified as my profession. Now, what about the tribal element? Did, were you with a cohesive group that you also left? Yeah, yeah. So that's another thing that, you know, that the general public doesn't understand is the camaraderie that you have um, in that type of setting. You know, we're on the same rotation, you know, um, you know, a lot of the you know, first responders are as well. We work the same rotation and they become your family. They become, uh, you know, you celebrate holidays together because, you know, the hospitals are never closed. So, you know, you plan Thanksgiving meals. Who's going to bring what? Because we're all going to be together on Thanksgiving as opposed to being with our families. Um, you know, we go through, uh, you know, deaths and births and uh, divorces um, and we go through all those things um, as a group. And uh, that is something when you separate from that, um, that is more difficult than what you realize. And, and I, I don't think I was prepared for that. Um, and, um, I left kind of, it was unexpected, um, to be totally separated from them. Um, but, you know, I'd work the same weekend, you know, uh, every other weekend, every other holiday with the same groups. And another thing that a lot of people, you know, the general public doesn't understand that, you know, if, if we respond to say a particular trauma or a code or, you know, a mass trauma alert, um, that is something that I'm always going to share 
uh, with that with that coworker, and we may never speak of it again. Um, but you know, if you think in your life for you know someone who isn't in this type of setting, and you think you know one of the worst situations of your life, you know, do you remember who was there with you? And of course you do. Um, and one thing that we have is. Um, this bond that we have gone through all these very horrific, terrible um, situations together over and over and over year after year. Um, so leaving them also, I felt, you know, I felt very alone. Um, uh, I lost my whole um, social environment, my whole, um, you know, uh, my friends, my family. Um, and it was like just total separation from that as well. So what did that look like for you from that point onwards? Um, so I uh, went through um, a, a period, uh, a very, very dark period. And that's the only way that I can describe that. And that is totally not me. Um, anybody that knows me, um, you know, I'm uh, very outgoing. I'm very social. Um, you know, I enjoy people. I love people. Uh, and that was a very, very difficult, dark time for me um, to where I literally and probably the first time in my life, I had no idea um, who I was or, or what I was doing. So where, where did the, uh, the loss of a friend factor into this? So um, uh, actually in, um, uh, you know, we talked about the camaraderie um, and uh Someone that that I had worked with, you know, I think we'd worked together for, oh, um, you know, right around 10 years. Um, and um, uh, my beautiful friend, um, Amy, uh, she, uh, we worked that same rotation, um, you know, same weekend, all that for all those years. Um, she and I were actually pregnant at the same time, um, me with my third son and uh, her actually with her third child. We were pregnant at the same time. So, of course, we went through that together in the baby showers and all that. And um, uh, we, you know, we're working the same weekend and, and she was actually on swing shift. So I was coming in on, um, I was leaving on day shift. She was coming in on night shift and, um, it was Memorial day weekend, uh, in May of, uh, 2014. And, um, um, uh, I, the, that weekend, um, uh, she was actually killed, um, on a, on an ATV. So, um, she was uh, impaled by um, a tree limb on a, um, uh, you know, on a trail. So, but, you know, the thing about that, that nobody understands, and I look back now, and at the time we just lived through it, um, I actually was, um, I wasn't, I was actually teaching full time at a, at a university and um, I was still working at the hospital as well because that's what we all do as first responders. We have, you know, healthcare workers, we have multiple jobs. And um, the way that I ex uh, explain that is, you know, there was no support at home. I think that people, like I said, your, your family and the general public doesn't understand that closeness that you have. And during that grieving process, um, I didn't want to be at home. I only wanted to be at work. Um, and even though that 
you know, seemingly um, compounded that that problem and that issue. Um, I, you know, I compare that to, um, uh, you know, like when a when a barn catches on fire, um, you know, the animals will run back into the barn um, because that's their place of comfort um, and that's their security. And you have to be careful, uh, you know, to to run them off because they will actually go back into a, a burning barn. And, um, you know, that's my only way that I can explain that is um, even though that was a terrible place to be um, and none of us knew how to process that, um, it, it, it was how we all responded. We only wanted to be around each other. Um, and then, you know, the, the normal everyday traumas and codes and, and all that, we were just expected to just do our jobs. Yeah, it's funny how many people, you know, that I know that have done that too. Not so much even following a tragedy, but just as that mental ill health starts to grow and grow and you see them, they'll, they'll sign up for all the overtime shifts and without realizing that they're just trying to, to fill the void by being distracted at work. Yes. And, and, you know, um, one thing that we had to deal with was, um, you know, who's going to work and who's going to go to her funeral. And, um, and actually, you know, uh, the situation itself, you know, and I look back and, um, she didn't have identification on her, um, uh, and the group that she was with, they knew where she worked, um, things like that. And, um, uh, when she was life flighted out, uh, the hospital that they life flighted her to actually called our department and they said that, you know, hey, we think we've got one of your your coworkers here and we need to get a hold of her family. So then it was actually, you know, one of one of us, one of my my coworkers, another respiratory therapist who was actually Amy's best friend, um, you know, had to contact her mother. And um, um, so you know, um, and then you go into, you know, we know things that the that normal people don't know. Um, we know to ask questions that the the general public wouldn't think to ask. Um, you know, we wanted to know, um, you know, you know why she why she bled out, how long she was in OR, um, you know, did she make it off the table? Um, all those questions, which you know, was harder for us to know, but yet we knew to ask them all. And, um, um, you know, just processing that information and then that being further exasper exacerbated by knowing that information, um, you know, just I think it put lots of us in a very downward um, spiral during that time. Yeah, well, I'm sure. So so where was the... the the bottom where was the darkest place you found yourself before you started climbing your way back up well um you know and like i said i you know i um i'm very strong in my faith and um i really did i really thought that hey i messed up my calling in life is to is to take care of others and um um what you know god what am i going to do because um, you know, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't take into account that, um, that I'm not big enough to, um, to mess up God's plan. So, so I, um, you know, I, I have four wonderful kids and, um, I just kept getting up every day 
and um, I kept getting up and I kept going and you know I kept kept praying you know God where do you want me where do you want me and um, I started reading and I started educating myself because uh, you know that's that's kind of how we handle things um, you know I lost a lot of weight um, uh, you know it, I was just you know a, a very dark period so um, you know, I started doing, uh, doing yoga and that was something that I did consistently. And, um, it, it definitely was something that I was amazed, um, uh, at how well it started helping. And, um, uh, then of course I wanted to figure out why does it help? Why did it help me? Why did it help calm my brain? Why did it, uh, you know, help all my aches and pains and, um, uh, why do I feel this release of emotion when I do it? So then I just, uh, you know, like I'm just education, science minded. And, you know, I just kept studying. And then, you know, when I started getting into the, the PTSD studying, I actually started talking to several friends of mine who I considered were um, uh, very, you know, they would be the people that I would want in a situation if it were my child or if it was my family member, if it was me. And I started, you know, asking some difficult questions. And I think still I didn't take into account that I was at that point. But, you know, when when those people started opening up it to me um, and started giving me information and saying, well, you know what, I, I have constant nightmares or, you know, I have um uh, I can't be around crowds or I can't be around this. You know, I started thinking, you know, if they as as I perceive them as strong and as as wonderful as clinicians and caregivers that they are, um, why do I think that I have went through this situation unscathed? Um, and I kind of had to start owning it and be OK with it to get rid of some of that toughness and say, you know what, it's OK that I haven't processed this information. Um, you know, as long as I'm going in the right direction, um, it's OK for me to say that, hey, I've got the you know, I struggle with these things um, and I'm going to be brave enough and big enough Um to let other people know that it that that it's okay and that recognizing that they too can have these issues and still perform to the best of their ability to still um, you know be kick-ass uh, clinicians that um, you know getting rid of that stigma and and uh, just getting that word out that that we have to take better care of ourselves because we are doing a terrible job. Oh, exactly. And then that's the thing. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said as long as I go in the right direction. You know, we live in this fast food, you know, quick fix mentality, and, and that's not the way it works. We've spent decades beating ourselves down. It's not going to be overnight finding your way out the other side. But if constantly, whether it's your weight, whether it's your fitness, whether it's, you know, like you said, your mental health, if every day, and you're gonna you're gonna slip back sometimes too. But if overall the 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 trend is you're moving in the right direction, then trust the process. Yes. And, you know, uh, a big thing as uh, to me, you know, I hear a lot of people that do the public speaking um, and, you know, uh, I've I've had the honor of being in wonderful uh, company with people um, who are like minded. And, uh, you know, I'm not just here to tell a story um, to me. Um, 
show me proof. Show me proof that says, uh, you know, that that we have these these um, the changes of the brain and that we have these issues with hormone release and, um, you know, what that those effects have on our bodies. Um, you've got to tell me those things because. I'm not just going to accept a story. You know, I want to know why. I want to know why this happened, why my body reacts, why my brain processes uh, things um, differently. Um, and that's that's my goal is to educate people on those things. And then everyone's healing process is kind of their own journey. Um, so then at that point, if they have all the information and all the tools then that's where they pick that up and they they carry that and they they take it hopefully uh you know like a, you know like we said everybody heading in the right direction yeah well let's expand on that because something i talk about a lot with this is the effect of shift work on you know the responders and the medical community we see you know incredible ill health amongst doctors and nurses i mean there's no question about that too they're exposed to the same things they don't see daylight for hours on end they you know they're up at night and trying to sleep in the day so from a educational scientific background what are some of the things that you talk about when you present yeah. So, uh, you know, in, in the healthcare community, um, you know, uh, uh, personally, I feel like, you know, weight gain um, and just unhealthy lifestyles um, are, are very detrimental to us. Um, and, you know, I, I was the same way. So when I started looking at, you know, like the uh, the release of, of cortisol in the system, uh, which, you know, cortisol is one of our, um, you know, it's essentially a steroid, you know, hormone, um, uh, you know, it should be, um, you know, it should taper itself off during the day. Um, it is how our body uh, regulates glucose. And, um, but yet it's overproduced and overstimulated um, during that stress response. So, you know, one thing that we have is um, uh, we have that very big fluctuations in, in, um, our blood sugars. So then we're constantly, you know, maybe grabbing carbs. Um, and that's very easy for us to grab as well. So not only are we, uh, our hormones are all out of whack and we are craving these things. Um, we are also under the, um, uh, we, we are, um, we have to, you know, our workloads, we're not able to eat well. Um, so it is very easy for us to grab carbs and these sugary snacks and things like that. Um, and uh, and then it just kind of creates this vicious cycle. So it also leads to fatigue and poor sleep. Um, so, you know, when I go in and I say, hey, you know, you need to be exercising, you need to be working out. And, you know, these people physically feel horrible. And, and I understand that, um, but you have to start somewhere. Um, you have to start regulating that. Um, when you have that cortisol and that adrenaline release, obviously when we, uh, when we work out and we get a good um, uh, cardio workout in, you know, it helps the body process those, those hormones and, and, you know, flush our systems. Um, and then, you know, when we're talking about the, the sleep issue, you know, our bodies are not made to stay awake all night, um, you know, and anybody that's worked, uh, you know, shift work, you know, about two, three o'clock in the morning, that's when you start getting sleepy. Um, that's when our body temperature drops because we should be asleep. Um, and then, you know, the <laughs> crazy thing that we do, um, and I'm very guilty of this, you know, is 
okay, well, I'm going to stay awake. You know, I'm going to work my shift, you know, whether it be 12 hours, 16, 24, and then there's stuff I need to get done. So then I'm going to stay awake. Um, So, you know, 24, 36 hours, we're awake and we know that we are not processing information at that point. We know that we are not functioning um, on all all four cylinders. So that is um, something sleep is something definitely that we have to get control of and we have to recognize the importance of that. Your body has to reset. You have to uh, you have to take that time for rest. Um, And, you know, something that that we used to do, you know, I would come home after working all night, be awake 24 hours, and I have very small children, and no one here to help me. And um, so, you know, I would, you know, try to turn cartoons on or, you know, and literally just be falling asleep sitting in the chair or, you know, wherever. Um, And people would use the thing, you know, uh, would use the thing, take a nap. You know, it's not a nap. I didn't get in any sleep. It's not me taking a nap. I need, you know, uh, consistent hours. But uh, one very unhealthy thing that we would do, um, and I'm sure this is this is common across the board, is, you know, um, uh, taking stimulants to keep us awake. Um, And uh, a lot of us females would go get, you know, diet pills, things like that. Um, and it wasn't for the weight loss. It was literally just so that we could get home in the mornings. Yeah. Well, I think so many people listening to that can relate. And even with the family dynamic too, I was, I was divorced and a single dad going through my busiest year specifically when I was through medic school and working on the busiest rescues in the county. Um, so with, with that family dynamic, did, were you able to communicate? Did you end up divorcing? What was the result of that? Yeah, so um, um, I did end up divorcing, um, uh, but, you know, it was after 14, 15 years of marriage. So, um, you know, most of my career, I was in that situation of that that non-supportive relationship. And um, that, you know, that is definitely something that we also are not good at is um, education to, um, you know, spouses of, of first responders and healthcare workers. I think that would get us, um, you know, a lot further in this battle as well would be providing, you know, the education necessary for them if, if they're not in the same, you know, circles. Absolutely. Well, speaking of education and support, so tell me about the uh, inception of Hero to Hero. So, um, like I said, after I went through that that dark that dark period, and I really started educating myself, um, um, it kind of started unraveling, and it was um, uh, a series of events that I say were just God things, um, because um, I'd actually heard about uh, a couple suicides locally. Um, uh, one was, a um, a medic and one was a respiratory therapist. And, you know, I just kind of took those things as just, they, they just kept driving me, you know, um, um, you know, I felt like it was definitely a pushing force. Um, then, you know, I came in contact with, um, uh, Jay Dobbins and I'm actually, um, good friends with him, uh, the retired ATF agent. Um, and I, I got in contact with him and he actually invited me to an event. And then that's how I met Chris Fields. 
And it was just kind of like this, this, this process of the more I tried, then the more doors kept opening. So um, I wanted to get um, some type of credentialing uh, that um, kind of gave me some street cred, I guess we could say. So that's when I, um, I did the uh, trauma recovery coach uh, program and became a certified trauma recovery co coach. And, um, you know, I learned so much, um, not just on uh, response to trauma, um, but I learned a lot about myself and it made me really evaluate um, why I did things. Um, it helped me um, show myself a lot of grace. And that's something that I say a lot. Um, I think that in our professions, we deal with a lot of shame, uh, which, you know, we, we touched on that a little bit earlier. We deal with a lot of guilt. We deal with a lot of shame. Um, just, you know, we always feel like we're neglecting someone somewhere, uh, whether it be our patients, whether it be our families, um, you know, and uh, I was able to show myself a lot of grace. Uh, forgive myself for a lot of things. And that is one thing that um, that I like to, you know, tell people in my audience or people that I'm working one on one with. Um, and um, I'd actually brought up the the topic to a good friend of mine who was having a, a respiratory conference in uh, in Kentucky. And I, I told her what I was looking at, and what I was doing. And she said, well, you should speak at my conference. And I said, you know, uh, it it was, uh, I like to say, um, exciting as opposed to uh, made me nervous, but um, I, I like to change that up because I, I was very excited. Um, so that was where the, the public speaking started. Um, and I formed the, the Hero to Hero. Um, uh, and, you know, I worked with a marketing guy and, and all that, all that cool stuff. Um, and uh, you know, my goal is is to create programs. I do a lot of public speaking um, and create programs that are specific to departments or uh, to groups. You know, maybe they're dealing with something. Maybe they've went through, you know, death of a coworker um, like like I did and, and my team did. And just to help them um, and to have that relatability that um you know, a lot of our mental health professionals don't have. And I've heard a lot of people say that, that, hey, when I go in um, and I try to talk to my mental health provider, um, they are shocked at the stories that I have or the, uh, you know, what I am actually dealing with. They are shocked um, and, you know, they just can't relate to them. So, um, I like to think that since I've had this experience myself, then, um, you know, that gives me an inside look and, and I'm able to be more helpful to those people. Yeah, and that's such an important part. The number of horror stories I heard from people going through EAP and, you know, they're they're on their last, last uh, um, I guess, last ditch effort at trying to find help. And now the counselor's in tears or even worse, I've, ha I've had some talk that literally the counselor said, I can't help you get out. What does that, what message does that send to someone in crisis? Well, I am a piece of shit. I am crazy. I am, you know, whatever. And then they, they go and complete suicide. So yeah, I think that's so, so important that, that we have counselors who truly understand not only what we do, but also the language too. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, so that's kind of been my goal. Um, uh, and it, it has been received very well. I do uh, one on one trauma recovery coaching uh, with my 
my focus being on first responders and healthcare workers. Um, and, you know, so that, you know, I normally do that uh, over video. Um, and the difference between coaching and, uh, you know, counseling is um, uh, I help uh, clients process uh, events or process situations and and help them, you know, provide them with tools um, in that healing process. And, um, you know, it's it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I'm their their biggest their biggest fan, you know, um, and I'm going to push them a little bit, push them out of their comfort zone, um, maybe get them to recognize um, that um, that they carry a lot of that guilt and shame. Um, they carry a lot of responsibilities um, that that isn't theirs to carry. So those are some things that I that I work one on one with people through. Brilliant. Where can people find that? So, uh, yeah, so I have my my Hero to Hero uh, website. Um, so uh, it's just www.hero2hero.com. Um, you know, I'm also on Instagram, um, Hero to Hero. And um, uh, my name is Grit Meets Grace on there. Uh, and I post a lot of information uh, on Instagram. And um, I also have a, a Facebook page that that transfers over to. Uh, that, you know, that does provide education um, for things. And, you know, maybe, you know, just to try to plant that seed to say, hey, you know, this is this is why you do this. You're not crazy. Um, you know what we can't accept. Uh, we can't accept that it's OK to stay there, that it's OK to stay in that dark place or that it's OK um, or that I'm justifying um, your response to your situation because that's not what I'm doing. Um, uh, we do have a job to do. Um, and even though we have all these uh, exposures and we have all these stress responses, um, it is our job, it is our responsibility to uh, manage those things. Um, you know, uh, we don't want to, you know, we can't we can't help anyone if if our cup is is empty, um, you know, and and um, we have to stop justifying our bad behavior or our um, uh, poor coping mechanisms um, due to due to our job situations. Absolutely. It's a double edged sword, too, because we also have to understand that the job is setting us up for failure as well. So understanding those two um combined and then working out how you can affect what you can own and then maybe as as an employer how you can change the environment to create your men and women uh the ability to thrive rather than break down right yes absolutely so you know so that's my goal um and you know i've i've actually yesterday i got confirmation that you know i was asked to speak on a, a national level um, and that is just, um, you know, like I said, that just keeps pushing me forward. That lets me know that that this message needs to be heard, um, that our profession is desperately um, needing uh, this help and needs this information to be out there to help break down this, uh, you know, this stigma and say that, hey, you know, I can uh, I can take care of myself um, and me seeking mental, uh, you know, health um, that doesn't decrease my abilities as a clinician um and and that's definitely the message that i want to get out to everybody yeah and some, something that I, I talk about a lot as well to to frame it in the fact that 
if you address trauma, then you have post-traumatic growth. You become a more resilient, more effective human being. So when you look at it as rather I'm broken, I need to fix myself, but I've had this challenge. I need to, to get even better than I used to be. I think that's a great focus to, to look at it positively rather than, you know, some pseudo recovery process. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, recognizing, uh, just through education, and being able to step back and say, okay, well, I'm responding um, in this way, or this is why this makes me uncomfortable. Um, that is all part of the healing process. That is, um, uh, like you said, that's how we show growth is um, having an understanding of why we react or why our bodies um, feel this way um, is a huge part in that journey and just uh, um, getting better um, and definitely, you know, uh, just overall, overall health and, and taking better care of ourselves. So that understanding of why all that's happening uh, is the grounds for, uh, you know, the future growth. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. Um, the first question I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be something related to what we've talked about today or something completely different. Yeah, absolutely. So the the two that um, uh, the the body keeps uh, the score that is a great uh, great reference book. Uh, mind, uh, brain, mind, and body uh, in the healing of trauma. So that's a great book. Um, and another one that I found uh, very resourceful was um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Yeah, I've had that recommended a few times now. I have to read it. Yeah, yeah. So that's a really good one, too. It just, you know, uh, why um, uh, our bodies um, are so affected by these uh, these hormones and things that are released, um, you know, as opposed to, you know, other mammals that also have those. But we're not supposed to stay in that heightened um, heightened, uh, you know, sense of. Um, you know, those heightened senses, we're not supposed to stay, stay there or live there um, like we do. Absolutely. All right. What about a film or a movie? A film or a movie? I'm not great with films or movies. Um, uh, you know, it's it's really not, um, you know, actually, um, um, I, 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 films and, and things are often a, a trigger for me. Um, so I kind of uh, avoid those, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Are there any any documentaries you've seen, or are they also a trigger? Um, you know, I have to be. Um, I am very um, protective of uh, my energy levels, um, and I know that that may seem kind of crazy for some people that aren't uh, aren't really aware of that, um, but. Um, you know, if, if, if I'm going to watch something, I, I want it to be very enjoyable. I want it to be, uh, you know, a comedy or things like that. Um, uh, you know, I always like, I always enjoy educational, uh, you know, documentaries and things like that. But as far as things that involve trauma or trauma response, um, uh, I tend to avoid those, um, in a video, I will pick up a book and I will read it to an extent. And then if I start getting, uh, you know, 
feeling emotional or anxiety or anything like that, then I'm able to put it down. So that's why I choose reading over or watching. That makes sense. All right, then next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and medical professions of the world? Well, there are, are tons of, of wonderful, uh, you know, people that I have um, spoke with. Um, you know, actually, I, I have a, a, a close friend, um, uh, Corey Dean, that is um, a firefighter medic. Um, and um, he does a lot of speaking on uh, his battle with alcohol addiction. And, um, you know, he's very open about it. Um, and, um, you know, I think that through his profession and, uh, just his overcoming of addiction, I think that he would be, it would be beneficial for others to hear his story. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I know, uh, my friend Chad, the one I referenced, um, his story was, was received incredibly well because I think it's the elephant in the room and he was you know, one of the few people that had the courage to actually stand up and tell his story. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. So in the last question, before we make sure we know where to find you, what do you do to decompress? So, um, you know, I'm very, very purposeful um, in, uh, you know, physical activity. Um, so I have gotten to the point to where if I am becoming anxious or, uh, or feel nervousness, I will make sure that I get in, uh, you know, a good cardiac, uh, cardio workout. Um, uh, and I, you know, I love doing anything. So I love water. I love, you know, kayaking and lots of physical activity. Um, and that's just not, um, you know, a physical release. That's very, a mental release for me. Um, that's very, uh, that helps me decompress, helps me sleep. Uh, and I, you know, I always encourage people to just find what, what is good for them, whether it be listening to music. Um, you know, my friend Amy that, that I talked about that passed away, she was a drummer. Um, and she would go home after a bad days of work and she would beat on, on her, her, on her drums. Um, so, you know, whatever works for you, you just have to find it and then be purposeful in doing it. Love it. All right. So then just one more time where people can find Hero to Hero and then find you online. Yeah, so just um, HeroToHero.com is my website. Um, and then, uh, you know, I have an Instagram uh, is HeroToHero. Um, and uh, the name is uh, Grit Meets Grace. And then, of course, you know, Leslie Yancey on, on Facebook. Um, and then I do have a, a Hero to Hero page on Facebook as well. Brilliant. Well, Leslie, I just want to say thank you so much. It's it's such a unique perspective, especially specifically with the RT profession and your journey there and ICU. So thank you so much for telling your story. Thank you very much. I'm truly really honored to have this opportunity.